This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. This is Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. You're a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Ken Tripp. And I am Zach Moore. And before we get started this week, I just want to read a listener email. We got a very nice listener email from brad alexander uh he had some thoughts on the show that we're just gonna read out to you guys so uh here's here's what brad has to say awesome show gents i'm really enjoying the interesting angles from which you come at tos after all these years the previous host had great discussions and while refreshing to hear individuals takes on the nuances of an episode however and especially as a listener to mission log sometimes the episode analysis feel kind of redundant but several of the last shows have shown some real genius in the topic areas like the toys of star trek well, thank you. That was my idea. <laughs> um, okay, Zach, just read it. <laughs> and uh, another one was the space stations. That was your idea, Ken. So he gives us it's both credit. For, but uh, keep up the good show ideas. Well, definitely. And this is a team effort. Me, me and Ken, I mean, we don't like have a schedule or anything, but we do just, you know, kind of, hey, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? And it's all just a, a good partnership here. But uh, he goes on to say, by the way, the Defiant from Deep Space Nine is my favorite starship referencing our starship discussions uh and then brad has some more to say he says ken it's nice to see someone on standard orbit who can say kirk is my captain i'm about four years older than you are and while kirk is indeed my captain my favorite series is definitely deep space nine the storytelling was amazing in fact and i bet that might be an interesting series comparison of the captains of course you would have to have hosts from the different shows on i think that would be a great series of round tables well we were put that in the in the id bank and the idea bank there brad and uh, and finally, he says, and finally, I wanted to tell the chief, thanks for your service and thanks for making it the entire career. I was army and only made it eight years. One of you said something on a previous show about doing it differently. If you had to do it all over again, at one point, I thought I would. While I was in the army, I found my love of submarines and submarine warfare. Bet you can't guess what uh, TOS episode is consistently in my top five. Well, I bet we can. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now that I am in this stage of my life, however, I wouldn't give up the 30 years married to my bride or the kids and granddaughters for all the tea in China. Anyway, thanks for the effort on Standard Orbit. Unfortunately, I dropped Facebook like a bad habit almost five years ago. You're probably better off for it. <laughs> probably much more productive person than we are, Brad. Um, <laughs> I think so. And... Uh, or else I would probably spend all my time on the Babel conference. The one thing I ask is that you not forget we Luddies out there that use email. Thanks, Brad. Well, you're not forgotten, Brad. And thank you so much for those kind words, man. That, that That's why we do this. You know, we're sitting here, we're talking out into the void, and whenever we get something back, it's always a very encouraging uh, feeling, so... Yeah, we, you know, we have we have great listeners, and, and a lot of people have been, have been getting more and more engaged, and we've been getting a lot more feedback just... You know, some IMs here and there, and then, of course, you know, all the nice comments that, uh, on the Babel Conference and the great discussions. I think there's two things going on that, that have made this a lot of fun. One, you know, Zach and I are trying to put a very different lens on the show, and, and we come up uh, with, with these ideas. And not all of them hit. We know that, too. But you know what? At least we're willing to take a chance. Two, we keep it light, right? We, we, liked, we like to keep Star Trek fun. That, mean, that doesn't mean we, we won't talk about a controversial subject from time to time. But I think, you know... For us, this is um, this is our escape, and we're hoping that for all of you that get to listen every Monday morning on your commutes in and so forth, that it it has that right amount of energy, that right amount of fun that that you can get into it. It's not too too heavy, and like I said, we're not afraid to go there every once in a while. But 
you know, what is Star Trek? It's entertainment. We love it, and we love doing this podcast, and we love the feedback, both good and bad, and what things we could do better, too. But I'll tell you, Brad, getting that note really meant a lot. I, I uh, remember the, the second I read it and, and reaching out to Zach, I was like, did you read that? I mean, that was that was really something. And it's just, you know, it, it's nice to hear that um, when, when people say, hey, you know, you make it fun, you do this. I think it's good for you guys to hear too. Hey, you make it nice for us when when we get that kind of feedback. It really feels good. So thank you very much. Yeah, and don't be a stranger, Brad, or anybody else out there who doesn't have Facebook, as you mentioned. You know, I know, I know we're always talking about the Babel Conference, and we love the Babel Conference, but you know, a lot of people aren't on Facebook and aren't participants there. So yeah, feel free to email us in and you know and, and be part of the show. We love it. So absolutely. Well, this week our subject. Moving on to that is. You know, the Enterprise, the Star Trek origins, we're getting back into that and, you know, where, where all these things came from, right? So in 1964, Gene Roddenberry uh, was pitching a show that featured a starship of humans exploring the galaxy aboard the USS Yorktown under the command of Captain Robert April as a, quote, wagon train to the stars. So, uh, and as it continued to get flushed out, uh, the ship's name, as well as their captain's name, changed a couple times, right? <laughs> uh, but, couple uh, times. <laughs> but the ship itself changed the USS Enterprise and the captain to Captain Christopher Pike. Yeah, you know, for all of us that, that love Star Trek and we, we consider the Enterprise to be a character and a main character for, for a bunch of the different series, um, it, was, it was interesting how they came up with that name. So I, I started to do some research and say, okay, how, how did they come up with the name? You know, and it's all speculative. So... When Zach and I were talking about a subject, it's like, okay, let's go back to that timeline. Uh, let's let's take a look at it. Would have could have been some of the key factors, and what was it about the Enterprise, right? Because if if you think about the timing of the show launch, it was less than twenty years after the end of World War II. Most, if not all, the main producers and writers were veterans of the war, and back then, generals, admirals, and even the ships were followed closely by the press and. They were celebrities within themselves, right? Think about it, right? You've, everybody knows Eisenhower and Patton and MacArthur. Probably lesser known on the Navy side was Admiral Nimitz, but Admiral Bull Halsey, Raymond Spruance, you know, a lot of names. And that kind of went along with that era. I mean, back then, these, these military heroes, the, the folks that literally won the war, uh, would sign autographs and people would write to them all the time. And then they also followed very closely, you know, campaigns and ships. And, and at that timeline, too, you know, um, the, first, the first name, right, that, that Roddenberry proposed was the Yorktown. And aside from a famous revolutionary battle, it was also a famous ship, actually two ships during World War II. And the, the first one was um, involved in the first naval campaign either where the two sides fought a battle but neither ship sighted each other because all fought by aircraft in the battle of the coral sea and then um the yorktown which was heavily damaged in that that battle uh, made it back to pearl harbor and within 80 hours it was turned around to go fight the battle of midway which it, it eventually sunk during that battle and a ship just like when captain kirk and <laughs> the team right in in star trek Four, you know, they come back. There was there was a new ship being built, and they they changed the name of the Enterprise. Well, there was another carrier being built, and in order to honor the Yorktown service, they immediately changed the name back to Yorktown. So Yorktown was back then, anyway, very popular, well known. It is sitting in Charlestown Harbor today as a as a monument. The uh, the second one, obviously, uh, the first one was recently filmed undersea. The same folks that found the Titanic found the Yorktown, which is kind of interesting. So I think that that may have been why that was such a, a big play. It wasn't um, that it was just the the last battle of the American Revolutionary War. I think it really focused on that ship. And it was, like I said, a very famous ship. But it was also a very American name, right? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't something that outside of the U.S. people would, would really know that name. And that's, that's kind of where... I'm guessing why the Yorktown was was set aside. Yeah, Ken, I'm thinking for a quote United Earth ship, Yorktown might have been too exclusively American. So, do you think that was really the main reason why they changed the name of the ship to Enterprise? I'm I'm thinking, you know, it's all speculation, but in all the research that we looked at, I believe Enterprise was was more appropriate and appealing. But 
there's some there's some big reasons why. Um, during World War II, there was a USS Enterprise, and her her num she was number six. She was the sixth aircraft carrier ever built, and she was designated CV. And in the Navy, uh, ships have designations, right? If you're a destroyer, you're a DD. If you're a guided missile destroyer, you're a DDG. If you're an aircraft carrier, you're a CV. The C for carrier, and V stands for air wing. Oh, okay. Right. I always thought it was vehicle, but what do I know? So. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, but that, it, it stands for E-wing. So any, any air squadrons in the Navy start with the letter V. So if it's an attack squadron, you'll see VA for, for air wing attack or, um, you know, VB for bombers or, or fighter bombers, or they even have VQ squadrons. I don't remember what the Q stands for, the Q stands for but those Q squadrons were like um, patrol planes, spy planes, things along those okay. lines. Yeah, I know. Back to Star Trek, Ken. <laughs> Sorry, folks. So I thought it'd be interesting, if if you'd like, Zach, to kind of talk about the history of the Enterprise, what made it such a famous ship, and some of the parallels with the um, with the show Star Trek, and, and why I think, anyway, Enterprise is more than an appropriate name. Yeah, I think as, obviously, the real-life Enterprise inspired, you know, the Enterprise we see in Star Trek, but we've gotten to the point now, we've gotten so far away from you know, the, the actual ship being in service back in the day and, mm-hmm. you know, well, the, the initial ship we're talking about and, and Star Trek has become such a pop culture phenomenon. It, it's really overshadowed like the real life thing. Like you say, enterprise people think of Star Trek. They don't think of, Oh, there's a real, there's a real ship named enterprise. I, I bet a lot of people don't even know that. So I find it, I find it fascinating to dig deeper into like the, the real life inspirations for all these things. And that's what these, the Star Trek origins kind of series we do is all about. So yeah, let's get into it. Okay. So when we talk about the, now, first of all, there were several ships before World War II that were called Enterprise, from sloops to steamers, all different kinds of yeah, vessels. Yeah, I, I learned that from Star Trek Generations, Ken. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now the show comes to a screeching halt. No, we're not going to go down the generations, but yes, that's that's correct. And. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, and and yet you know she was also in as you saw in generations it was spelled with a Z right mm-hmm. for a Z and so there was enterprises in the British fleet as well but in the U.S. fleet the most famous one to start with or the the most I guess the most successful warship in U.S. Navy history was the carrier Enterprise during World War II she was commissioned in 1936 uh, she was only one of uh, three carriers in the entire fleet that survived World War II, which, well, is, which is pretty huh? fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And coincidentally, she was a Yorktown-class aircraft carrier, the Yorktown being the first of her, of her kind. And, you know, when we think about Star Trek's Enterprise and the Starship Enterprise, you know, we talk about the fact, especially in the TV shows, and a lot of victories, right? I mean, she, she took some hits here and there. Um, but we often talk about how often during the, the movies that the Enterprise just gets the you-know-what kicked out of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And if you look at the World War II carrier, and it was the most highly decorated warship in our history, and she fought in almost every major campaign in the Pacific, she was hit by bombs and torpedoes. She was forced from action many times, and she kept getting upgraded and coming back, kind of like our Enterprise, mm-hmm. right? The Starship Enterprise. A lot of similarities there, and and I think that 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 coincides a lot. And I could see where, if you're thinking about what do you name a ship, and if you want this to be your flagship, one that you know um, serves with pride, uh, is very successful in all its campaigns takes some hits now and then, keeps getting upgraded, keeps coming back. Because think about it, um, when when the TV show aired, the Starship Enterprise, according to the Menagerie, what had been in service at that point almost 18 years, something like that. Yes, yeah, if he served with Pike 11 years ago, if you do the math... Yeah, it's 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 been at least you know around fifteen years by that point. Yes, at, at least right because you had Robert April who was before him, mm-hmm. and uh, so the ship had been around, but it had been upgraded. It had been, you know, changed quite significantly, and it had been painted a much brighter red color. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> on the inside. So I think I think there's some some parallels with with that enterprise and our enterprise. You know, being what we like to think of as as the ship of the line. The, one of the things that was kind of sad about the aircraft carrier CV-6 Enterprise is that uh, at the end of the war, uh, well, let me, let me say a couple of things about her. Not only was she 
a survivor of all the major campaigns. She was part of the famous Doolittle raid, you know, the Hornet with the B-20, B-25s that flew and attacked Japan from the so- so-called secret base of Shangri-La. Uh, she was out there with her fighter planes uh, protecting the Hornet in, in case they encountered Japanese shipping. She was, uh, the Enterprise was in the, the famous Battle of Midway. Uh, even before those battles, she was out there um, patrolling the Hawaiian Islands. She actually came into Pearl Harbor the night of December 7th. So she missed that onslaught by about 12 hours. But several of her planes that were flying back to Pearl Harbor that night were actually shot down because they thought they were enemy aircraft and people were panicking and shooting at everything. So it's it's pretty interesting that way. And then... um, you know, she was at Guadalcanal, she was in the Marianas, she was in the Philippine Sea Battles, and she was also the first carrier to deploy a dedicated nighttime operations air wing. So she became a night fighting ship, which, you know, is how we do a lot of things today, but she pioneered that. Uh, and as the war went on, as I was saying before, they kept adding to her armaments, kept adding to her radars. Uh, again, a lot like the Starship Enterprise, when you think about how it transformed from the TV show to the movies. You know, the new Enterprise was the latest and greatest and, and had all the bells and whistles on it. So I thought that was kind of cool. But on a sad front, here was the most highly decorated ship of the war. Um, she had been through a lot. Uh, she was used after the war ended to, to ferry the troops home uh, from, you know, from the different islands in the Pacific and also from Europe. And then she, she pulled into New York Harbor. Uh, it was decommissioned late in 1946. And she literally sat in the pier for like 12 years. Mm. Um, there, was, there was the intention to, to buy it and, and, and make it a memorial, but the, the funding just wasn't there. And uh, she was eventually scrapped, mm. just, just torn apart, which, you know, for such a historical tri- ship, I mean, like I said, you have the Yorktown, which is down in... Uh, Charleston. You have the Intrepid, which is in New York Harbor. And there are others, you know, uh, here and there, mostly uh, uh, battleships, not so much carriers. But here was the most famous, most efficient, most effective warship in our history. And she was just torn apart. Sold so, for scrap, huh? That's tough. Sold for scrap. They, uh, they put the ship's bell in the Naval Academy, which was kind of neat. They did take out a couple of the of a different portholes. Uh, and they were used on another ship, actually the new Enterprise. Her her stern plate with the name Enterprise on it is now at a baseball park, hmm. like a Little League baseball park in New Jersey. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so. It's interesting, you know, uh, although we're talking uh, to go outside of the Star Trek narrative here, it's, it's interesting, you know, you, you talk about how this is the most famous, you know, ship and most successful ship, and it was turned for scrap. It makes me think back to, you know, the actual sets of the original series, right? You know, they canceled Star Trek, right. and they just unceremoniously threw everything out. I mean, that's crazy. Can you imagine that? Like, can you imagine how much, like, the captain's share from the original series would be worth today if that survived? And and then talking about the portholes, I know that uh, when they made Next Generation, so, I mean, they did save some things from the original series, right? And one of the things they saved was the transporter pads, you know, when you'd walk on it. And so when they built the Next Generation transporter room, they took what had been the bottom transporter pad from the original series and they put them in the top. So you're talking about the, the portholes there kind of and the new enterprise made me think about about that just the, on the production side of things, how they did things on Star Trek. So I'm glad, I'm glad a few things survived uh, from that because a few wow. things did. A few things did. And, you know, it's it's one of those things because, um, you know, I, I think my love of Star Trek carried over into my love for for the Navy and, and the appreciation of, of ships. And that was a different era. You know, and they talk a lot about when when Harv Bennett took over Star Trek, and of course, you know, the Enterprise took took, took a beating, and then in Star Trek Three, Zach's favorite movie—that's great, right? favorite Star Trek movie, but yes, favorite Star Trek movie. I'm sorry, yeah, don't want to overstate it, but yeah, Star Trek Three. You know, when they when they decided to destroy the ship for dramatic purposes, well, Gene Roddenberry was very upset about that. He. He actually leaked it, I think, to try to get the fans to stop it, much like he leaked the death of Spock, right? And 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 there was a reason for that. I mean, that was that was an era where people really appreciated and thought more of the ships as being a part of themselves and a part of the family, and and not just uh, a vessel. And, and it reminded me when we did our 
discussion about what was your favorite starship on the Babel conference, which might have been one of the longest threads we ever saw. And and it was really engaging. And people were really talking about how much they love their starships and, and talking about it. And then there were a couple of people that were like, well, what difference does it make as long as it gets them from A to B? And it's like, no! <laughs> from A to B to C to D to E, yeah. That's right. That's right. So I think that's... That's that. That's. I think that might have been a, a big reason why they they chose the name Enterprise. But there was one other big reason. Um, in 1961, the the U.S. commissioned a new Enterprise, CVN 65, not CV6 A, not CV6 B, <laughs> not CVA 6 C. Is that is that not C- a Navy thing? The, the the letters is not from the Navy. The uh, when no. you read, okay, that's completely fabricated by Star Trek, huh? I don't know if it's fabricated, but it was kind of cool. And and I do remember when they were making Next Generation and other shows. For whatever reason, the Enterprise is the only ship that does that, right? Um, I think that was in their in their guidelines. So. You know, you, you might come across another a ship with a well, defiant. Defiant. There's no defiant example. A, right? Yeah, or or any of the other ships that that had names that that were used before. Now, so. There was that really wacky uh, registry number on the Yamato, and that one episode of Next Generation is the fake Yamato. So more silence has least. They go into the void, and mm-hmm. Riker's like, "It's seven eight four eight. Uh, that's incorrect. I don't know what the numbers are. Okay, but it's a bunch of numbers." Dash E. And I guess whoever wrote that episode, actually it was Jack B. Swords, who wrote uh, Wrath of Khan, wrote that episode, by the way. Uh, trivia, oh, right trivia, trivia. Uh, That's a good one. But th- it's like, hey, man, do a little research. I'm sure, like you said, Ken, I'm sure it was in <laughs> some kind of, you know, the writer's Bible or something about, hey, no other ships get that. And then when they actually do meet the Yamato a few episodes down the road in Contagion, it's a completely different <laughs> registry number. They corrected that error. So anyway, fanboys have a fun time trying to justify why the registry one numbers bridge. are different. One bridge. <laughs> one right One bridge. <laughs> it's a great yeah. moment. It's a great moment. That was, yeah, one of those times where it's just like, yeah, they really haven't developed Worf too much yet, have they? <laughs> Literally. See, this is the minutia we love as Star Trek fans. We're talking about registry numbers. So I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. So anyway, so the designation, again, was CVN-65. C for carrier, V for air wing, N for nuclear. So she was the first nuclear-powered uh, aircraft carrier in the world. And at the time that she was built in 61, she was the largest, most powerful ship in the world. She was 1,180 feet long. So what is the five? 65. But 65 is, um, oh, the, the six has nothing to do with the six from the CV6. Oh, uh, okay. Okay, when they, when they number a carrier and other classes of ship, that means that is the 65th aircraft carrier in the U.S. fleet. I see. That had ever been built. Gotcha. Okay. The very first one, trivia, was the USS Langley, CV-1. Okay. okay. And the original Enterprise aircraft carrier was the sixth one built, and then, jeepers, during World War II all the way through 1960, they built a lot of carriers. Well, that makes a lot more <laughs> sense than the crazy way Star Trek numbers its ships, so... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it 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 does, but the uh, you know the navy uh, did not keep up with that tradition of huh. just naming, just numbering ships as they went along. Uh, destroyers based on class were changed and things, but carriers still. So uh, they they still number the carrier as you know from from the time they were built, and they just they just keep on going forward. But um, like I was saying, in in the early 1960s, this was a big deal. Here was the mighty Enterprise. She was the flagship of the U.S. fleet, uh, the biggest, the most powerful uh, ship in the world. So uh, she had a great name. She, and, and, you know, that's how they kind of recognized the first aircraft carriers. Uh, you know, that it was an honor to name it Enterprise uh, and, and to make such a big, big deal of it. And, you know, she was another thing that kind of put it in common with the Starship Enterprise, more maybe more along the lines of the refit Enterprise, Completely different, you know, just complete ship of the line, new engines, so a completely new propulsion, just like just like the refit, new weapons, new sensors. Um, and at the time of the Enterprise refit, it was the most advanced ship in the fleet, just kind of like the, uh, the Enterprise was in 1961. But you know what's interesting about this ship, Zach? She lasted over 51 years. Wow. So she, the, the, we talk about how, the original Enterprise in the TV show 
Uh, we know that, like we said, by the time the TV show started, that she supposedly, supposedly has already been in service for 15 years. It, it launched five. into 2240s, is what we've been yeah. able to, using some math to figure it out. So it, it lasted from then until the 2280s, which is approximately 40 years for the original right. Enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. So that it's not unheard of. And if capital ships in the Navy uh, can go that long, especially carriers, uh, there's the, the last few ships that they call, they call it carrying the pennant. Uh, the oldest uh, commissioned ship in active service. So the oldest commissioned ship in the Navy's fleet is the USS Constitution in Boston. Uh, but obviously she's not an active warship. See, I was going to I was going to ask you about that because the I know we were talking in Yorktown a lot, but the Constitution I know was also in Roddenberry's short list for names and mm-hmm. uh, I guess they they thought that might have been too American as well cuz you know, the US Constitution, right? I guess that's probably the same thinking. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but they did use uh, the name Constellation, which was mm-hmm. a sister ship of the Constitution. They use Republic was, as well. So, yep. So they they've done it, and of course, those ships have have a long and storied name that that have followed through, and all were were ships during World War II as well. Uh, Constellation was also a a, a a U.S. aircraft carrier, a pretty pretty good sized one. She wasn't nuclear, but. She was around that same era as the Enterprise, so yeah, there's 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 some some commonalities there. But if you think about it, um, the refit sailed what for twenty years they said up until Star Trek Three. Well, see, you put uh, it all together. Yeah, that, that's something? they're they're wrong about that. And Star Trek Three, like that that line is incorrect because he says the Enterprise is twenty years old. Like no, Star Trek was twenty years old, but the Enterprise by then is forty years old. If you're doing the refit, if you think the refit happened like in the twenty two seventies. If it's like maybe 10 years old, 12 years old by the time of Star Trek 3, because there's a big gap, obviously, between motion picture and Rathacon. So, uh, right. but then, of course, then it gets blown up. But then the Enterprise A gets decommissioned after just a few years. But if that wasn't old, I guess the thinking is that was the original Yorktown that got a refit. So it was really as old as the first Enterprise would have been. So it maybe would have been about 40 years old by then, 50 years, who knows? But then the who knows what happened to the B. Uh, the C got destroyed, and then there was a huge gap before we got the D. So, you know, looking at how long these starships last, by far, at least as far as we know, by far, the original Enterprise lasted the longest, so. Yeah, especially if you include the refit years. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Which, you know, I think had, um, you know, a piece of metal on her lower secondary hull that was about uh, the only thing that was left from the right. original Enterprise. Well, I've I've seen I've seen it called a former Yorktown. I've seen it called the Tai Ho. Uh, there were there were all kinds of names. But if you just go by Star Trek V, which makes me cringe, but not as bad as Generations. Um, Agreed. It is. It, it was a ship that was rapidly put together, and that's why it just wasn't working right. So if it had been a a a well sailed. Um, you know, long in service ship, it wouldn't have performed that way. So I think the I think the true the true canon piece of that is that the ship was built from scratch. It might have had a different designation, maybe like the Yorktown, the uh, the carrier Yorktown. Uh, the Enterprise got destroyed. They renamed it Enterprise in honor of that ship, and and off they go. And uh, Rather than you know buy a whole new model or whatever, here you you know slap an A on it and you're off to the races. <laughs> Let's see what she's got. Let's see what she's got. So anyway, the um, the CVN sixty five Enterprise, like I said, she served uh, for fifty years. She she was involved uh, off the Vietnam War. She was involved in some scraps in in the Middle East. She was involved uh, in Desert Storm, uh, the Afghanistan War, the Iraq War. She had a long and storied history of good service, and uh, it was a beautiful ship. I had seen it before in Norfolk a few times, and uh, she, she it took a while because her last her last voyage was in 2012, and it took uh, three to four years for them to. Get all the fuel out of uh, out of the reactors, uh, you know, to defuel the ship, and so now, and I, I've posted it on my own Facebook page, so you can go take a look. Uh, there's there's a couple of different uh, articles that I posted a few weeks back when they officially decommissioned her, so she is she is now being towed away, just like her predecessor for scrap. So I had a question about how often do they have to go into like dry dock to get like just upkeep on these ships, you know? Because if they're staying in the water, they're like, there's a certain amount of time they have to 
get out of oh, the yeah. water and repair? Like, well, is there some kind of circulation cycle of X amount of there years? Is. Well, what is that? I'm just curious. And I'm sure many of the yeah. listeners are too. So, yeah, you know, I, I think every 12 to 18 months, she'll, she'll go into to dry dock. Uh, some of it might just be for, for more routine maintenance. But, you know, sensors, technology, things change. Uh, radars, communications. Uh, the ships will always, when, when they come in off a, off a cruise, so uh, deployment schedules used to be pretty consistent, six months on, six months off uh, for, for Navy vessels, and then, you know, maybe an 18-month refit at, at so far uh, after they reach a certain point in their life. And um, that's changed a lot, uh, shrinking military budgets, uh, trying to get more out of the ships. They've, they've pushed them. Uh, the, the, the voyages now can go as long as eight to nine months uh, to sea uh, with a faster turnaround. But the, the ships are really taking a beating nowadays more than they used to. But uh, there was a point, I don't know what year it was, where the Enterprise went through SLEP. Uh, that's S-L-E-P, the Ship Life Extension Program, mm. where they upgraded everything. You know, they upgraded the, the, the racks, the bedding, the... The radars, the the uh, the flight deck, you name it. Uh, you know, if you if you go online and you look pictures, look at pictures of the Enterprise from the time she was commissioned till the time she was decommissioned, she had a very distinct looking island. Uh, but you can see where they made modifications along the way, uh, different sensors, different radars. It's it's pretty cool actually, and uh, you can see that they are they're constantly they're upgrading and, and changing. Uh, you know, this was a ship that uh, didn't need fuel, right? It was nuclear powered, but they did have to refuel the reactors after, I want to say, 10 or 15 years, something along those lines. That's how long that was good for. So it's had an incredible life uh, to it and, and a storied history. But it, I think it's kind of cool that the, uh, the USS Enterprise CVN-65 was commissioned four years before um, Star Trek came on. Or, or I should say three years, excuse me, 61, 64, right? And then um, she outlasted all of the Star Trek series and movies because she was just decommissioned yeah, a few weeks the ago. the prime time was the prime enterprise <laughs> right there. <laughs> That's right. She beat them all, man. That's she nice. She beat them all. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so now now that she is, has been decommissioned, the good news is there will be another USS Enterprise. Mm, as there always is. As there always is. So right after they announced that they were decommissioning the Enterprise, they announced that uh, one of the newer aircraft carriers, uh, a Ford-class carrier, uh, will bear the name Enterprise. Her number will be CVN-80. Gotcha. The 80th. Yeah. All that, see, I'm, now I can now I can look at these ships and understand all the numbering means, Ken. So thank you. Uh, so it's, it's crazy. So this ship is going to launch in the early 2020s, they said. Uh, which really makes you feel like we are living in the future, <laughs> because I mean, even even me, who I love reminding you, is much younger than you, Ken. Uh, even for me, the <laughs> the year two thousand is like the future, right? In the year two thousand, all right. Conan O'Brien had this kid in the year two thousand, and then it it's funny they continued it after the year two thousand, which was just hilarious. But uh, you, you say the early twenty twenties, like wow, we're really getting close to the actual Star Trek future. You know, in first contact is just you know, just sixty years away, but fifty years away, right? So two thousand sixty three. So uh, it's crazy to see that, like in, in in print and black and white right there. This the new Enterprise will launch in twenty twenty. It makes you feel like I'm reading some fake Star Trek encyclopedia article and not the real world, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it, it is something, and you know, I remember as a kid. And they used to have pictures of, you know, what the fleet would look like, the Navy fleet would look like. And while if, uh, if you want to see some cool pictures, look up the USS Zumwalt and you'll see a pretty cool, very futuristic destroyer that they've just built in, in a class of destroyers. It, it is really far out space nuts looking. But the, um, you know, basically not, not a lot has changed. And it's kind of like the... I guess the 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 changes in the generations of starships, right? Still, yeah, it's changed, but even the basic shapes and designs, those those very distinct Federation-looking starships, not re- even in the JJ verse, they haven't really changed much at all, right? I mean, right. Circle neck, <laughs> secondary hull, engines, and and if you're you an know. Excelsior or Miranda class, you can just last forever. So, well, that's right. Yeah, that's that's the beautiful <laughs> thing because. 
you know, as we, as we like to uh, tell our nice Earl Grey friends, man, you know, for, for a show that was successful, they, they really uh, mind the heck out of those movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but that, that if you look at talking about how long these Navy ships last, that's completely realistic for those ships to last 70, 80 years, assuming they're being taken care of. They go through the regular baryon sweeps, as we learned in Next Generation, get those every few years, right? Then uh, they're in good shape. So that's... Uh, it's interesting that the more you learn about like how the real Navy works, the more like Star Trek kind of works as well. I just it's always this connection between the two of them. Uh, and, and as you said, you know the the whole uh, Nicholas Meyer and and uh, Harv Bennett, you know, kind of their their era of Star Trek was the most Navy of them all. But uh, that influence can be felt even all the way down through the next generation and and the rest of the twenty fourth century shows that so many new incarnations look back to even as you know we go in the kelvin timeline i'm sure discovery i'm very interested to see what discovery has the same kind of if they're going to go for like the naval feel or anything like that because it takes place in an earlier time of course so i mean even you know that the sets of enterprise which was you know a prequel to tos it looked very you know submarine-esque and everything's cramped and there's pipes and people are you know kneeling down right. and that kind of thing so just across the board organizationally visually you know structural command structure wise uh, you know, the Navy has, has had a serious influence on Star Trek and m- no more so than the Enterprise itself, right? Yeah, which is ironic because, you know, the show was created by an Army guy or an Army Air Force guy. Nice, uh, yeah. Roddenberry. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's, it, is just, it is just kind of interesting and, and you know, how people kind of follow along. But that, that tells you, though, you know, in a different era, how closely these things were followed, right? I mean... It was just it was just a big deal. There was a there was an arms race on back then, and there was some prestige in being the first and the biggest, like the Enterprise was the CVN sixty five. That was a big deal back then, right? Because you know you had your you had your bad guy Soviet Union that were building huge fleets too, but they they couldn't match the technology or or the scale of the Enterprise right. and. That ship, while it was it, when it, by the time it was decommissioned, it was no longer the largest. It, it it had maintained it as the the longest. It just wasn't as heavy as a lot of the new carriers that had been built in the fifty years since she was built. But uh, their propulsion's the same. But you know, you made an excellent point, Zach. That during the the next generation, and especially Deep Space Nine, you saw a lot of old starships. Yeah. Uh, and and you're right. They they do last. And if you think about it. Even though the propulsion has changed in terms of, you know, nuclear power versus steam or gas turbine or something that they use in the fleet, they still just turn a propeller, right? Uh So, you know, interesting, like in relics, when they talk about, you know, impulse engine technology still pretty much the same. You know, they, they hadn't changed a lot of things. So they can do, they're more efficient and the ships can go, I guess, a bit faster uh, with maybe not the the same size engines that that they needed during the uh, the original series era, but it does kind of mirror the fleet in that sense. You know, ships can last longer, and even the new ones they keep basically the same standard shape and this basic same way of doing things, just like the Navy does. I mean, ships from World War II, they're not as streamlined as as ships from today, but you know, some of them could still pack quite a wallop. In fact, we have never duplicated battleships. Never. Or their firepower to this day. So it's kind of impressive. And there's no families on board, are there, Ken? Oh, good God, no. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm sure if there were, they they would separate the ship into two parts, right? To ensure the family safety whenever they went to dangerous situations, (laughs) right? That that seems to be the logical thing. Yeah, to do. yeah, yeah. Usually, when a navy ship separates in two parts, that just means the uh, one part is sinking by the bow and one is sinking by the stern. Time, time for CVN eighty one at that point. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it's a bad day, but it is it it, inter- it is an interesting discussion. Uh, like I said, how you could have that kind of continuity mm-hmm. and how it could follow. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Well, you if you look at if you look at a sh- to a layman like myself, right? You look at a ship from like a World War II archival footage. And they look at the right. news today, like, look, a ship off the coast of wherever. I'm like, well, that looks pretty much the same to me. Like, I <laughs> I can tell, like, well, there's a bigger gun turret on there, and the planes on the aircraft carrier are more advanced. But to, you know, to the everyday guy like myself, it, it's like, yeah, that's that's a ship. That is a military boat, right? <laughs> that is uh, yep. all, I, all I see. So it is interesting, you know, you point out that back, you know, back in the day when these things were, 
coming out. Well, you know, when they first, well, oh, correct my terminology, when the second Enterprise carrier came out uh, in the 60s, people were really tuned into this stuff. People would gravitate towards these names and know them. And, you know, I guess that just, that goes to a lot of things. You know, I think we're so permeated with so much else in our, you know, pop culture environment or just news or anything. Uh, you kind of, this stuff gets lost in, lost in the shuffle unless you're like kind of tuned into it like you are, Ken. Like, I don't think a lot of people are like, oh, did you hear about the new Enterprise? It's coming out in 2020, right? No one, no one really talks about that much in the same way people don't talk about NASA anymore, right? I mean, because back in the, again, the 60s, you know, people were like, oh yeah, the Apollo 11, I can't, you know, people were excited. They knew astronauts' names. These guys were celebrities, like much like the generals were that they named all these ships off of, uh, after I should say. So it's just the, just an observation, not saying good or bad. It's just how far we you know drifted away from being plugged into all this stuff right yeah i think there was a lot of national pride back then about it because it was a literal arms race right there was there was the perceived bad guy bad guy in the soviet union and we wanted to be a, a big deterrent so we we just kept kind of out technologying one or the other with with bigger better ships or like you've pointed out to nasa it was a space race right I mean, the Russians were the first in space, and the the Americans were the first on the moon. And there was, you know, when when the shuttle was coming out, that was a huge deal because something reusable and and going up into outer space. And people followed it closely because it was, again, it was a, it was a piece of national pride. And and now, you know, it's there's kind of a, a different feel out there. It just is, you know, there there isn't um, quite that uh, that same feel. Or if if you do have that feeling towards it, you you, you can you can be labeled bad things. So it's, uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I tell people it's like, why, why, diff- why haven't we gone back to the moon? I'm like, well, if North Korea plans to go to the moon, maybe we'll go back. Right. Like that's that's the kind of, you know, inspiration we need to to get there first. But I mean, that's it's all politically. Uh, yes, there's obviously scientific and, you know, and, and the uh, manifest destiny of mankind and all that is going for us when we like go explore the moon and Mars. But I mean, that's why we got our butts in gear and went to the moon because the Russians were going to go. Right. And that's and so and now that we were like the masters of space, the United States are like, all right, we we've done it, been there, done that. Let's let's orbit in a space station for the next 30 years around Earth. Right. I mean, NASA's just. I love NASA. I live down the street from NASA, okay? It's just not as exciting to the general public, and I totally understand why, because it's like, oh, what are you guys doing up there? Well, we we grew some grass, and we tested the uh, zero-gravity effects on mice, and you know, we're doing some really interesting stuff. Like, that doesn't excite people with that kind of national pride you're talking about, Ken. So here we are in the... Yeah, but I also think it could be a unifying force. You know, one of the one of the great things about landing on the moon, not that the United States did it first, but it was the way they did it. You know, they they didn't say this is a a, a giant leap for the United States. They said for all mankind. Mm-hmm. And I think those are the things that that could inspire and draw us together. And I think the space shuttle did that to a large degree. Is mm-hmm. you're probably too young to remember, but when they were building it, um it was an international effort, right? If you see some pictures of the Columbia when she's extending the uh, the arm out of the out of the shuttle, right? It has a Canadian flag on it. Or you'll see that different astronauts from around the world flew on it, just like the International Space Station. Uh, I would love to see a joint, you know, united approach to launching men's and women's. Excuse me if I'm, you know. Ones. <laughs> hey, we're, we're a TOS podcast ones, here. Forgive us. Okay. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. One's journey to uh, to Mars would be so exciting, right? I mean, it, it really would. And I think you know, because, you know, we've conquered the moon in that sense, what's the next big step? You know, wouldn't it be cool? And and because of um, of TV shows and, and the way our, our you know, we, we can get pulled into virtual reality we forget how important how important it is to stay real. Excellent, right? excellent point, Ken. Well yeah, said. It's, it's a, yeah, we 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 got to stay focused because uh, yeah, if you're going to put that lens over your face and just pretend, uh, what a waste. <laughs> It's too true, Ken. Too true. No, th- this has been a fascinating, you know, kind of history lesson into the the legacy of the name Enterprise. You know, I mean, in Star Trek, obviously Enterprise. Let you know. Never forget the name Enterprise, right? That's a big, that's a big deal in Star Trek. But in the real world, that's that has such a uh, equal legacy, really. And if you know, ex- uh, just relatively to to uh, the military here, and that's something that something gets lost to lost in the history books, and people aren't really tuning into those things anymore. And it's 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 fun to explore that and how it influenced 
such a widespread social phenomenon like Star Trek. You know, these are these, the, the, the way Star the reason why Star Trek was so successful is it tapped into stuff that was in the real world and extrapolated it in a fictional sense. But I mean, it had it had a solid core basis in reality, and that and that's that's great. I mean, that, that it's coming from truth, so that's why it's so powerful, right? I think so. I think so. There was there was a lot of great things that the the name Enterprise had had accomplished by the time Star Trek aired. You know, the first the first surface ship to circle the Earth without having to refuel, and um, you know the the other one being uh, the one that held the line for a long time while the U.S. fleet was decimated and needed to be built back up, and you know just was one of just a very few ships to actually carry on the fight and did it nobly and well. And, um, you know, actually took place in the battle that turned the whole course of the war in Midway. So, yeah, there's there's a lot to to enterprise history that's that's out there. You don't just have to be a, a fan of um, naval warfare or history. Um, you could be a fan of technology and look at a lot of the firsts that were established on the CVN 65 and some of the new technologies that are going to be incorporated on the CVN 80. It's going to keep on going. And so you'll. You know, you can you can actually tap into kind of the fantasy piece and the Star Trek and, you know, because we're always cheering for the Enterprise and we want it to be the coolest and the best ship in the world. And uh, at the same time, you could kind of look at today and what's going on and saying, oh, OK, you know, when by the time this thing launches, what are its capabilities? What is it going to be able to do? You know, and if you also look at a lot of the cruises and the missions of the CVN 65 over the 51 years, they and you can find it all online. You'll be amazed too how many how how many more humanitarian type missions it was actually on than war fighting. In fact, most of its career was just that, right? They would train for war, but they were out there bringing relief to to earthquake victims and uh, Indonesia and the Philippines and different places that were hit by hurricanes or typhoon. Just it's an incredible legacy of of doing a lot of what you would say humanitarian good missions. The real true purpose of of our enterprise on Star Trek, which one day we hope that all of our ships will be carrying out, not not to drop bombs necessarily on bad guys, but to uh, to bring food to those that 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 need it, uh, or equipment or supplies to help people survive. And you'll be happy to know that that enterprise did that, probably as often as our fictional one did. Wow. Well, well said, Ken. Can't can't add any more to that. Well said. But uh, the history of the enterprise. Isn't the only thing we're discussing this week on Trek FM. Here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. Was the BBC wrong in doing this? Not under the auspices that this is a kid's show and showing it during, you know, uh, when, when kids would be watching. Because if you think about it, there's uh, 75 other episodes that they did show, some with some minor editing, which I think would have been appropriate. The 602 Club. Going back to the Gotham thing really quickly, I know this is semi-derailing. Um, why would you want to move to Gotham? I mean, he has to have been there. It's like the picture that he has on his wall is this beautiful, shiny, like daytime view, if I'm not mistaken, of Gotham, which I don't think we ever see. Um, it was like, I'm not really sure Charm City looks quite nice. <laughs> like, so. Literary Treks. But still, at the same time, you're left with that what if, you know. And I, and I know that, like, the Parallels episode gives you a, a couple of brief glimpses of Riker in command after Picard is dead. And, and it doesn't seem to be going well for Mr. Riker at that point. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So you can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at trek.fm and grab the RSS link as well. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. That makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes and helps us increase our visibility for new listeners. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at trek.fm, you can always find us on trek.fm contact and look in the sidebar on the show page or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, facebook.com slash trekfm, and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. So let me talk to you for a second about Patreon, Zach. Patreon is the program that Trek FM employs in order to get donations to keep the network coming to you commercial free. It is wonderful. Most of the hosts here on Trek FM are big contributors to Patreon and found our way onto the network through Patreon. 
So if you can uh, spare any money, uh, and we don't care what the denomination is, it really means a lot to us because there is a lot of content that we're putting up there, a lot of bandwidth, a lot of programming, a lot of equipment that we need. So please, if you can help us out, we'd appreciate it. And all you have to do is go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash trackfm, and you can you can click any donation you want. And we do have some incentives for you. So for $15 a month, you get to join the Patrons Roundtable where you podcast. And, and, you know, again, that is where a lot of us started. It was on the Roundtable. I was on the very first one. I had a blast. And if you can contribute $25 or more per month, then you get associate producer credits for whatever show you like. And we love our associate producers. So... Please, 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 if you if you have the ability, it is more than appreciated. And speaking of our associate producers, we'd like to thank Renee Roberts, Richard Rutledge, and Aaron Harvey. Thank you so much, always, for your support for both Standard Orbit and the Trek FM network. You can find Renee on Twitter at MRES underscore 1701. You can find Richard at RUT8972. And you can find our buddy Aaron Harvey at GeekFilter. So if you're looking for me on the network, you can you can find me on the Babel Conference. I'm always on there, uh, pre-post shows, talking different subjects with all our listeners. And you can also find me on Twitter, at Boston SCPO. That means Boston Senior Chief Petty Officer. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach. That's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. And I'm also the host of my own podcast called Always Hold On to Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that young Superman show from the early 2000s. And we're on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. And also I'm around the Babel Conference as well. It's always great to talk to you guys on there, making conversation about our shows, other shows, general Star Trek topics, anything really. Love to talk to you guys on there. So thanks for listening, everyone. And join us again next time here on Trek.fm for another episode of Standard Orbit. Standard Orbit.